Hi, everybody, and welcome to the NDSC podcast, a place where management faculty and PhD students share about their journeys and stories in academia. Before we start uh, with our next episode and, and talk with our next guest, I want to thank one of our main sponsors for this year. And this is the Research Methods Division of AOM, right? So maybe we all know already that AOM has 20-something different divisions, and one of those is uh, the Research Methods Division. And this year they were super generous, right, and, and were one of our top sponsors. Thank you, thank you, thank you to the Research Methods Division. I'm going to share the link right at the bottom of, of our podcast episode, right? And you can check out the division website. And they offer tons of stuff, right? They offer, I mean, if you are a member of their division, right, you have access to their newsletter and their listserv, right? And they have a partnership with the Organizational Research Methods Journal. They organize PDWs, paper sessions, symposiums at, this, at the annual meeting. And they have a doctoral consortium, right? And there's tons of other resources, uh, methodology courses, videos, a lot of it uh, to have access, right? So I think it's also kind of like a nice signal, right? To see that Research Methods Division wants to sponsor the new doctoral student consortium and, and, and provide a lot of support. Again, this, this ethos in the field of having our students receive the best training possible. So thanks again to the Research Methods Division, to everybody that is a, a member there uh, and supported the new doctoral student consortium. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this last interview that I'm recording here at AOM, uh, Academy of Management meeting in Boston. Uh, this time I'm by myself. I don't have anybody else from my team, but I have a, an amazing guest. I have Matt Wood from Oklahoma University. Uh, Matt, thanks for being with me. Yeah, yeah, happy to be here. Thanks. Uh, so, Matt, some, something that I always like to start with is uh, before kind of getting into research, academia, university mm-hmm. setting, Tell me something about what you that has nothing to do with research with academia, right? Maybe a hobby, something that you do in your in your free time, something uh, about math, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, from a hobby perspective, so I've always been, you know, played football in high school and college. I've always been into kind of weightlifting and working out. So that's something that's been consistent for, you know, many years now. So that's something that I always like to do. But um Something that um, my wife and I like to do is we have an RV and we like to do a lot of RV traveling. And Mm -hmm. so one of the things that's really nice about um, this profession is that, you know, we've got flexibility in the summer. And so we usually spend a lot of time in our RV traveling, you know, many miles, you know, going different places, a lot of national parks and that kind of thing. And so um, I have an office set up. I can work, you know, my RV um, but at the same time, we can go, you know, explore and hike and do all these kinds of things. So it's uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to be able to do that. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big RVer and I spend a lot of time in RV traveling. So it's a lot of fun. So, nice. Yeah. So you, you talked about football a little bit. So now you're a Sooner, right? And, yeah. And that's yeah. a nice team to cheer for. But yeah, yeah. Uh, what's your 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 team? And maybe if, maybe you, you have to say uh, Oklahoma, <laughs> but if not uh, on the NFL, right? Which, yeah. what are, what, which teams well, you like? So... NFL is uh, I'm a Chicago Bears fan because okay. I grew up in uh, grew up in Illinois and spent you know first 35 years of my life in Illinois so a lifelong Chicago Bears fan and actually uh, 
this past year, my nephew graduated from Northern Arizona University. Uh-huh. He played yeah. football. Lumberjacks. He, he was a lumberjack, and uh, he got signed by the Chicago Bears. Oh. So um, he got cut after the third preseason game. But um, I was able to go to Chicago Bears training camp and sit in the you know the family area and go out on the practice field with him and all that. And so it was like I was like a kid at Christmas, you know, like ten year old kid going awesome. to the to Bears training camp. So uh, yeah, lifelong Chicago Bears fans. So That's awesome. Huge, huge football fan. Thanks yeah. for sharing that with yeah. us. Yeah, sure. So now getting into the topic, right? And the first question I always ask is how you ended up here, right? Yeah. How? Yeah. What was the crazy thing that said, oh, I want to become an academic, I want to become a professor, and maybe what was a little bit of that pathway, Yeah, right? yeah. So I was an entrepreneur before I got into this, so I owned a commercial printing business mm-hmm. um, in Illinois, and um, the business was growing, doing well, and I, you know, we had a lot of, we were kind of in that phase where we had gone from, you know, like 15 employees to 25 employees, and, you know, you're getting to a place where you really have to um, have standardized processes, like you can't, You know, there's certain things you can operate when you're small and you can't when you're large. So I decided to enroll, enroll in the executive MBA program mm. at Bradley University um, in Peoria, Illinois. And um, during that, it was all day Saturday, all day Friday, all day Saturday, every other weekend for 18 months. And so I'm in this executive MBA program. I'm surrounded by a bunch of people that are executives at places like Caterpillar and State Farm. And, you know, they were traveling to Singapore for meetings and doing all these things. And... I was, I mean, I was kind of jealous of that a little bit, you know, and then um, I'm sitting there and I'm just, I'm just loving everything I'm learning, everything I'm doing. Um, and I really started to reflect on this and talk to my wife about it. And I said, you know, I'm happiest when I'm at school. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the learning piece of it, the interacting with all these people, you know, every week I just look forward to it so much, you know. And so I thought, well, what's after an MBA, you know, so I was a PhD. I'm like, well, maybe I'll do that. <laughs> Not having any, uh, you know, understanding of what a PhD is. <laughs> oh, I know, is, I know right, that perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> so I started to look into it. So I started asking my professors at Bradley about PhD and they're like, well, it's a research degree. It's not, it's not MBA plus, you know, continuation <laughs> MBA. And I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah. really? So they're, they're like, you know, they gave me some article, research articles to read. And they're like, go read these and see kind of what you, what you think. And you know, I read them. I'm like, I, I don't understand the statistics and some of these other things, but I found them to be interesting. Um, and so I kind of started looking into this. And um, and so I'm like, man, you know, they, they started talking to me about the shortage of entrepreneurship faculty. That they're just, you know, this was 2000 and I started my PhD in 2006. So this was like 2005. And they're like, there's just not enough mm-hmm. quality, you know, faculty. There's just not enough faculty, you know, for this. And so I thought, well, I'm, you know, I've got this business experience. You know, I think I have the capabilities to do this. I'd like to teach. Um, this seems like something I could do. Um, and I remember this. I said, I said to one of the faculty members who I knew pretty well, I said, but I can't make $50,000 a year. You know, like I'm not willing to do that. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And he said, no, it's a little bit better than that. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, well, all right, let's, let's talk about this, you know. So... Um, actually started talking to my wife you know we had our business and you know we decided to put it up for sale you know to sell the business it wasn't that I'd sold my business and decided to get a PhD I put my business up for sale so that I could go do a PhD Um, and it was a huge commitment because our business was doing well we were in a comfortable you know life and it just felt like a calling to me to do this Um, and 
God bless my wife, you know, she's like, you know, okay, well, if this is, you know, where we're supposed to go, then, you know, this is what we'll do. So we put the business up for sale and we're able to sell it pretty quickly, actually. And then I started PhD program at Southern Illinois in 2006. And um, even that was, I was out of cycle with applying because when I sold my business and when I could leave the business after the kind of consulting agreement part of it. Um, so yeah, it took a while to kind of put all those pieces together. So, you know, I actually contacted the faculty at Southern Illinois and they're like, well, we have a, we have a spot, but we don't have any funding. So you'd have to pay your own way. And I said, that's fine. You know, I'll pay my own way. Um, I got to Southern Illinois and like the second week that I was there, they came in and said, oh, we have a research assistant position that just came open in the innovation center, you know, to cover your tuition and, you know, you get a stipend. Do you want it? I'm like, well, yeah, sure. So, you know, I mean, just the way things kind of fell together, it was, it just always felt like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So, um, yeah, so that's how I got here. So awesome. that's how I got on the journey. So, yeah. I think we share a lot of like common. Yeah. I was an yeah. entrepreneur too, so others, <laughs> I felt a, a lot of commonalities in that story. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the next question would be from this career, right? Uh, what's the most fulfilling thing that you do? And maybe it's the career now, or maybe if you think back when you're doing your PhD, right? But what's the, what do you think is some of the most fulfilling things you do now as an academic? I think I think some of the most fulfilling things that I do, um, you know, is 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 working. One is the, the discovery of, of new knowledge, like mm -hmm. finding out things or figuring things out that um, that are interested to me intrinsically interesting, but they can be helpful. So like, I love working with students, and working with students is a fulfilling part of the job, particularly undergraduate students, you know, and then obviously PhDs, but. I, is a fulfilling part of the job, but I think the thing I get the most satisfaction about is when I do something research-wise that I'm then like, my students need to know this, and I take it into the classroom. You know? mm. So I have, you know, I have whole modules developed for my undergraduate entrepreneurship class that are that are based on research, right? My research and other people's research, and you know, sometimes going into the classroom saying these these are things that haven't been published yet. Like you wouldn't see this in a mm -hmm. textbook for five more years yeah, yeah right and I can tell you today what we found out mm -hmm. and so I think doing that research that's relevant in a way that you can take it to your you know to undergraduate students um, is super fulfilling like it just really you feel like you're doing something you know meaningful you're able to share with them something um, that nobody else really knows right you know we've discovered this we have these findings we have empirical findings or to go in and ask students. I've also gone in students with findings that I'm perplexed by and said, okay, here's what we're doing. We're doing the study and you know, we, we thought this, but we have these you know, findings and it says this. I mean, what do you guys think is going mm -hmm, on? And mm -hmm. it's amazing the yeah. insights that they can generate you know, about, well, it's probably this. I'm like, huh, I hadn't thought about that, right? So um, just that interaction you know, with the students and it is, is fun. And then for me, I mean, mentoring at this point in my career, mentoring PhD students and junior faculty is by far and away the most rewarding part of it because um, you're just you're building lifelong friendships really with you know your PhD students and junior faculty but you just have this experience and, and they're trying so hard to get the publications and get tenure and get all these things and it's just really rewarding to be able to try to help them in some small way so yeah, yeah helping them is, is one of the rewarding oh, things at this stage in the career for that's, sure that's pretty cool yeah, yeah. so on the other side right mm -hmm. uh, what's the the other side of the coin right what's the one of the most challenging stuff about this career 
time. There's not enough of it, you know. Um, yes. I mean, yes. you know, trying to, you know, help working with PhD students, junior faculty, trying to do these things. You know, it's, it takes a lot of time, which is fine. But as you progress in your career, you know, there's just a lot of other responsibilities. You know, you're helping run your department. You're helping run the university. You know, you're part of this bigger community, and you have to do your your piece of it. So. Um, you know, it's it's everything you're doing as a PhD student, right? Then you add more teaching, and then you add running search committees, and then you add, you know, running a PhD program, and you just none of it really goes away. It's just yeah, additive, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> so, um, yeah. so you we just don't you, you just you just don't have enough you just don't have enough time, and that's I think that's the feeling you know that that kind of you can get overwhelmed with all the kinds of responsibilities. Um, that you have but but it's okay in the sense that all the things that you're doing are important you know Mm -hmm. they need to be done so they're fulfilling but yeah I think it's just time not enough time is the or feeling the perception you don't have enough time anyway is the most most challenging I always heard that right I'm a busy student and I always heard like well this is when you're gonna have the most time (laughs) I'm like which is what you can't conceive of right what (laughs) there's not enough time right (laughs) yeah so yeah yeah That, that problem unfortunately doesn't get much better. <laughs> so, um, maybe what's uh, I, I always like to ask uh, what's kind of like a great advice you receive maybe as a PhD student, maybe now as a faculty, or even before, right? That has yeah. helped you for your life. Yeah. So I think um, one of the one of the best pieces of advice that I've got that just immediately when you ask that immediately kind of comes to mind actually has to do with publishing research mm-hmm. you know it was a it was a question that I posed to Dean Shepard mm-hmm. you know when I was a PhD student and it was okay you know I'm working on these different projects you know I've got projects in different stages you know some are new some you know maybe there's an R&R right I'm, and how do I prioritize like how do I know which projects I should be spending my most time and he said to me he said that he always prioritized the thing that was closest to publication. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't revised and resubmit, that's your number one priority, right? And then you work your way back through the chain, but you're always working on the thing that's closest to publication when it's on your desk. And uh, I just found that to be, I, I've followed that to the letter. And so when I get an R&R, as soon as it comes in, I immediately start working on mm-hmm, it, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just proven to be such helpful advice in terms of kind of creating a decision rule so that I don't have to think, should I work on this or should I work on that? I just ask myself the question, which one's the closest to publication? Okay, I'm doing that, right? And that's just been a super helpful piece of advice um, that he gave me. So, yeah, Dean's great now. Yeah, that's yeah. a great advice. Yeah. Great, great advice. Yeah. Um, similar to that question, uh, I would ask then, kind of like, what's a resource, right, that maybe you share with your PhD students uh, that you think it's valuable in the field? So... There, there are two things that come to mind, and so one is directly related to the research and publishing mm-hmm. research. And the first one is there's an article by Locke Golden Biddle, mm-hmm. Locke and Golden Biddle. It's a 1997, I think, uh, AMJ article um, where they talk about um, they talk about this idea of coherence and establishing coherence. And so what they did is they reviewed a bunch of articles that were published in top journals and looked at the how the papers were positioned and they come up with these different kinds of um, you know they call it intertextual coherence which is you know you can you can spot a gap in the literature so we have they call it an incompleteness problem or you can have what they call um, 
synthesized coherence where you take two different pieces of literature that don't seem related and bring them together mm. right? and so this whole article it really just talks about how do you f- position and frame papers mm. and it's just been it was so helpful for me as a phd student trying to learn how to frame this and see they basically had just said look we just looked at the top articles to see how they did it and it pulled themes out and here's how they did it and there's like three different ways to do it you know problematize the literature and there's these three ways to problematize and so when i even now when i start our articles i'm like okay what am i what am i doing here am i saying that these literatures you know need to come together am i saying that there's a gap in the literature or am i saying that the literature's there but it's wrong and we need to you know do something different so that that article has been was super helpful for me i have all my phd students read it and then I make them, when they write introductions early on, use that language. Which one of these three things are you doing? You know, And so it's been very helpful. But the other article that I have my PhD students read, but I have all my undergraduate students read every semester, is an article. It's an HBR article mm-hmm. by um, Clay Christensen called The Measure of Your Life. Mm. And have you read it? I assigned that article in all my classes. Yeah. And- it's a kind of extra credit assignment. Yeah. Everybody has to read it. Yeah. 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 I love it. So I love it. It's one of my favorite articles yeah. of all time. And it's had, it's just so helpful because, you know, particularly we were talking earlier about what's the biggest challenge? Time, right? It's time. And we get, we get focused as academics on, you know, publications and we get focused on um, our status, you know, in the field. I mean, we're in a business where you kind of have to self-promote and, you know, I'm not super comfortable doing that. And you may not be either. Others may not be, but it's kind of part of the business. Right. And so that article talks about the measure of your life being the number of people that you helped along the way. It's not money. It's not prestige. It's not fame. It's not any of that. It's the number of people that you helped along the way. So, you know, I, I like to revisit that, you know, at different times because, you know, when you're limited on time and you have to prioritize things, okay, look, at the end of the day, what's going to be the most important thing here? It's going to be the number of people that we helped along the way. So what if my actions in the next day, week, or month when I'm overloaded is going to help people? And then that's the thing to focus on. And so I think it's helpful for PhD students. You know, in PhD program, you just got all this stuff coming at you. You're trying to find your footing. You're trying to figure this out. And you got to remember that we're academics, we're teachers, we help people. Yes. Right? Yes. And so our research, our teaching should help people. The rest of it will figure out, right? So that's why I just love that. I love that article for my PhD students, but I have my undergrads read it. And then we always have one class where we stop in the middle of the semester and talk about that. You yeah. Know, that's stuff. Very and it's, nice. my students are always comment that that's one of their favorite classes of the semester. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Probably yeah. for you too. Probably. I love, and I, what I do when I, when I teach on the fall semester, I leave it <clears throat> as a, as an extra grade, but they have to do it right before Thanksgiving break. Mm, and mm. kind of like part of the assignment is uh, mm-hmm. talk about it during Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they have to kind oh, of like write, a, write a little reflection yeah. of like when you discussed it in Thanksgiving with your family or whoever you met and uh, what happened, right? So it's kind of like... Oh, a, that's taking it a step further yeah, than yeah, I yeah. thought about. It. I love that. So, yeah. uh, But it's an extra credit, right? Yeah. But in the fall, there's a deadline, right? And you have to do it yeah. uh, for Thanksgiving. That's such a great idea. Yeah, so I, I think that. it's a I nice might, way to... I might steal that. No, yeah, for sure. Thank you. So I, I learned about that because my advisor kind of yeah. made me read it yeah. in the PhD program. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's awesome. Yeah. I, I'm 100% <laughs> and, and loving that advice. Yeah. And what I'll do 
uh, is I'll, I'll I'll share the links of both articles okay, okay. at the bottom of okay. the link for for okay. for your episode. Okay. okay. So just to finish, right? Last questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I. And last question, I always try to kind of like do something tailored yeah, to sure. the interviewee. Sure. We a little workshop with this, 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 this question already. Yeah. Um, and it's a little bit of your path, right? You yeah. graduated, you, you shared yeah. with me a little bit of uh, your path, right? right? After you graduated and right. how that... And I think uh, what I found really interesting on, on what Matt's about to share is uh, sometimes you apply to PhD programs and you have maybe an idea, right, of, of your program, of who you're working, but then you go into it and you discover... A lot of rules, a lot of like systematic, mm -hmm. I don't know, mm -hmm. right, structures, I don't know what mm -hmm. to call it, right? And then you feel like, well, maybe I'm very limited, I'm very constraining, now what are my options are, right? And I think what you're going to share really opens to, I mean, maybe, yeah, you, how to workshop, yeah, right? And, and then you, I think you'll share a little bit about the difference between being in like a more balanced or teaching mm -hmm. school or mm -hmm. a more research-oriented mm -hmm. school. So I think when you share that with me, I think that's amazing, and I would love yeah. for you to share a little bit yeah, of that. Yeah, no, thanks for the story. chance to, to share that. So yeah, I got my PhD at Southern Illinois University, and it was I got great training. There's great faculty, great training, but it, it's not an entrepreneurship you know program. There wasn't anybody really doing entrepreneurship work. I did most of my work with Bill McKinley, who was an organization theorist and a phenomenal scholar. So, so thankful for him and, and the work that we did. But, you know, one of the limitations of this is that none of the faculty had connections. You know, nobody could introduce me to anybody in the field of entrepreneurship. So um, I went to my first academy meeting and um, I met Mike Haney, who's at Syracuse University, was a couple years ahead of me in the PhD process. And I, I was explaining to this and I said, how do I make, how do I position myself in the market as an entrepreneurship scholar when I'm at a school that's not an entrepreneurship school and we have no entrepreneurship faculty, nobody knows anybody. And he said, he said, the first thing I would do is go to BAPS, the BAPS and Entrepreneurship Research Conference. I'm like, okay. So I submitted a paper and went to the BAPS and Entrepreneurship Conference in 2006 knowing, by myself, knowing absolutely nobody, you know, just walking into there you know, not, not knowing a soul. And I, it's just such a, it's been such a warm and welcoming community. People yes. have been so nice, so supportive. Um, it was that way then, it's that way now. I hope we can hang on to that for forever as we grow. But um, people were just so supportive and so helpful. Um, so, you know, I worked at trying to do that, but the reality is that, um, you know, I just couldn't get, I couldn't get an entrepreneurship faculty position at a research one school you know, even with some good publications um, for, for a variety of reasons. So I accepted a position at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, which was a 3-3 teaching, not, not a teaching school, but a more teaching than research school, right? A 3-3 school, great place, great people, loved it there. Um, but research is not, you know, rewarded. You don't have a community of scholars. And I wanted to be with an entrepreneurship group, you know? Um, so I had some success publishing there and, you know, kind of put, paid my dues there. And once you're out of your Ph.D. program and you have your first job, where you got your Ph.D. matters far less mm -hmm. for your second job than it does for your first job. Right. So um, then I interviewed and got the job offer at Baylor, which was one of the top entrepreneurship you know, programs. Yes. And it was thrilled. I mean, just I felt like I won the lottery, you know, when I got to, to go to Baylor. Um, you know, great people, um, 
you know, was in this, had much more of a research environment, less teaching, more research, had an opportunity to really flourish there and spent, you know, 10 years there. Um, and then just, you know, a year ago, moved to the University of Oklahoma to help um, do some things with, you know, with that program there. So I think that, um, you know, having been in these different environments, um, you know, one of the messages that I'd like to give to the audience is that you can move up. Like, you know, whatever your first job is coming out of your PhD program, like, does not determine the rest of your life. I mean, mm -hmm. you have agency. There's things that you can do. Um, and that, you know, going into that first, you know, to that first job, you know, it, it may not be the place that you envision yourself being forever, but they're paying you to do a job. You need to do it well and to the best of your ability. And if you do that, then, you know, other opportunities will open and you can, you can move. So I, I think you're right. I think when you go into a PhD program, like I had no sense of um, how it all really worked. Yeah. Right. And that, I mean, I knew that, you know, some programs were kind of, you know, more well known than others, but like, you know, that there wouldn't be an, anybody doing entrepreneurship and that that would be important to me. And that there wouldn't be anybody, there wouldn't be a network there, and that would be important. I, I mean, I just didn't, I just didn't know any of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the, the reality is, if I could go back and change it and say, well, you know, go to a more well-known program or go to a place that was specialized in entrepreneur, would you do that? I would say no, because everything that happened, shape, you know, happened for a reason and kind of shaped this this trajectory. Working with Bill McKinley, and who's an organization theorist, and learning all that org theory stuff from him has shaped my everything that I do and so without that relationship and without that training I would be I think on a very different path you know and so you just you know you're where you're, you're where you're supposed to be and you do the work to the best of your ability and then new opportunities will open so I just don't want anybody to ever feel like they're stuck yeah. you, you know you're not stuck you have agency you have options you just have to do the work and make the moves that, you know, be willing to make the moves, you know, to, to kind of move up. So uh, it is possible to move, you know, technically up in terms of the research game. If that's what somebody's interested in doing, it, it can be done. So that's kind of my message there. Yeah, I yeah. love it. Yeah. Thank, thanks for sharing this story. And yeah. I was actually, so you, you, you shared, the advice you shared was uh, given by you from Dean Shepard. I was, yesterday he talked at the Entrepreneurial Doctoral Consortium, and he started with this idea of, equifinality right and there's multiple paths mm, yes, to maybe reach yes, one point and yes. i think uh, i mean that's what he talked about yesterday but i think it's a little bit of this right yeah, like yeah, i mean we we think that there's just one way one path yes. but there's there's multiple right yes. and uh, i think that's that's pretty cool yeah absolutely Great matt point. thank yeah. you very much no, thank you thank for you. taking some time i know yeah. uh, conference season is busy yeah, right and, yeah. and especially someone like you i know you're yeah. all over yeah. but I, I really appreciate taking a couple minutes to yeah, absolutely to share absolutely glad to do it it's been an honor thanks for having me thank you very much